This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Danny Shaw. Now, Rishi Sunak has criticised the police's decision not to ban a planned march on Saturday uh, from pro-Palestinian groups in London. This is what the Prime Minister had to say earlier today. Yeah, this is a decision that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has made and he has said that he can ensure that we safeguard remembrance uh, for the country this weekend as well as keep the public safe. Now, my job is to hold him accountable for that and we've asked the police for information on how they will ensure that this happens. You know, my view is that these marches are uh, disrespectful and uh, that's what I'll be discussing with the police commissioner later today. Danny Shaw, what do you make of this disrespect argument there's there's lots of potential arguments uh, against this march this is quite an interesting new core argument uh, uh, for banning something well for a start a march cannot be banned simply because it's seen as being disrespectful um or offensive or that it might be inconvenient those are not grounds to ban a march either in law or i think most people would probably say morally ethically simply because it's disrespectful. So it's peculiar that Rishi Sunak should raise that as a possibility. The only grounds upon which the Met Police can apply to the Home Secretary to ban a march is if there's a risk of serious disorder that the police feel they cannot manage in any other way other than by having the march banned. And this is a power that they use very sparingly or that the authorities use very sparingly I think the last time that that a march was banned was 2011. That was an English Defence League march in Tower Hamlets in East London. So, uh, you know, the position of the Met at the moment is they don't have intelligence to suggest that there's going to be so much serious disorder that they have to apply for a ban. They're reviewing it. They'll be looking at it hour by hour. If it gets to that threshold, then I'm sure they'll go to the Home Secretary the moment they don't have that threshold reached. And that appears to have sort of riled Rishi Sunak. Katie, we have uh, in the latest Spectator out tomorrow, uh, cover on the politics of policing. So just explain to us what's going on here. Well, I think Rishi Sunak's clearly using that word about disrespect. And as uh, Danny just outlined, that doesn't really have much to do with the laws involved in stopping marches. I think you look probably at where some of the unhappiness, because we're now in a situation whereby it seems no one wants to quite take responsibility for why uh, the march cannot be policed or even take place in the way some want it to be. So the police are effectively saying there are no laws current that stop that stop it in the in the way that they currently see the march happening. And then you have number 10 implying that the police could stop it if they wanted to. Now, I think where some of the sentiment in government comes from on where there are question marks as to whether Mark Riley could do something if he wanted relates to a statement put out by the Met Police earlier in the week when the Met Police asked 
the coalition of organisers to consider postponing any demonstrations in London over the weekend. And they said um, there are reports that senior officers are concerned at criminal acts by breakaway groups intent on fueling disorder who are attracted by these regular events. So therefore, if you do think there's going to be disorder... Which, which, which is, would be the thing here, from these breakaway groups, what is it that's happened in the past 48 hours which makes you think that that disorder is you know, no longer at the threshold? And it could well be that the police never thought it was quite at the threshold, hence why they were asking, can you reconsider it? But I think that's what is really going on behind the scenes when it comes to the real reason you would stop this protest potentially going ahead. So what level of disorder are we talking about? But we're now in a situation where I think if you look ahead to what might happen on the weekend, you can start to see if this march does go ahead and there's anything, whether it is, you know, groups on the right clashing with pro-Palestinian protesters, whether it is people trying to sell poppies and those, and a blame game probably ensuing between the police and the government as to who's to blame because the voters feel as though the streets are not, you know, in control and so forth, there will be someone to blame. Danny, that point about the blame game is so interesting because there is a a shift in the dynamics that you've written about a a lot between government and the Metropolitan Police. Rishi Sunak today was saying it was his job to hold the police accountable. Normally ministers like to emphasise almost to a fault the operational independence of the Metropolitan Police. So what, what, what are the shifts in power dynamics and the sort of power battles that are going on between government and the Metropolitan Police? Well, I think Katie's right. Is uh, You know, I think what Rishi Sunak is doing is sort of laying the groundwork to blame the Met Police if the march goes ahead and if there is trouble or disorder, even if it's on a sort of fairly low level, you know, the government will be able to come out and say, well, we knew you couldn't handle it. This is exactly what, what happens and so on. So I think so. I think there's a bit of that going on with this particular issue. I think more broadly, you know, law and order, criminal justice is a is a key battleground at the next election. We've got five criminal justice or sentencing terrorism bills in the King's speech. And I think this is a little bit about, you know, ministers sort of flexing their muscles and saying, look, you know, this is the, you know, this is our territory. We're the ones who really know how to sort of protect the public and so on. You, the police officers, you know, you just sort of do our bidding. There's always been a sort of a bit of a tension going back. Do you remember the whole Plebgate row about a decade or so ago with that sense that Conservative ministers slightly looked down their noses at police officers? They were slightly beneath them. And I think there's a slight undercurrent of that, uh, you know, that I particularly detect from what Rishi Sunak and to some extent what Suella Bravman has has said as well. Katie, let's just look at Labour. Kirstama has uh, accused the Conservatives of uh, cowardice for picking a fight with the police instead of working with them. And the retort from uh, CCHQ was from the man who took his poppy off to film a PR video. So it's obviously becoming very... um, uh, Dirty, partisan, but where, do, where are Labour on, on the demonstration, on the marches? Yeah, as you say, I think it's already becoming very political in the sense clearly the Tories want to use this, just as the point Danny was making, to further say, 
Kistam is not one of you. He does not support the patriotism because there is that undertone here in terms of some of the things coming from the government. In terms of where Labour are, I mean, they are supporting the march going ahead. But I think of all the current aspects of the Israel-Palestine conflict in UK politics and in Westminster, it's probably one of the areas where Kistam is the most comfortable. Supporting the right of the protest to go ahead while also saying, you know, work with the police, do things safely and has a dividing line with the Tories, but one which isn't causing him an internal problem. Now, could Keir Starmer get away with suggesting that there shouldn't be a march calling for a ceasefire this weekend, given the unrest in his own party that he himself has not called for a ceasefire? I would say probably not without, you know, provoking that further. But I think that's neither here nor there, really, despite me just making that point on a podcast. Um, in, the, in the sense that the position is one which I think that, you know, Labour being pro-protest and the right for freedom of speech is consistent with lots of the things they would be saying. Um, so I think you're going to keep seeing probably Keir Starmer pushing Rishi Sunak a bit. And probably I think if there's a situation where Labour can look as though it's supportive of the police, that's also quite beneficial for Keir Starmer. And just sticking with you, Katie, uh, we've obviously had the first uh, front bench resignation from Labour uh, in the form of Imran Hussein, who quit overnight you've written about this on coffee house today asking the question of whether other labor front benches are going to follow suit i'm not going to ask you to predict the future but how are things looking within the labor party now there has been what many were predicting would happen earlier a, a resignation yeah and, and i think while i pose that question in the blog i mean i think that Again, we don't have to predict things happening in a short period of time and be proven wrong. But also, Hussein is someone who actually signed that early day motion quite early on, calling for a ceasefire. And others, he was the first to do that in terms of a front bencher. And I think, therefore, when it comes to talking about those who in shadow ministerial roles, who were most likely to resign or high on the resignation watch list. I think his name would have been at the top. It doesn't mean others won't follow. I think with this, as soon as one person goes, I think those MPs known to be feeling very conflicted or unhappy with the Labour leadership's message will probably come under more pressure from certain groups because they will say, well, one person's gone, you know, they'll push further and see if they can. I also think something to look for next week is there is an attempt at an amendment to the King's speech by MPs on the left of the Labour Party and some SNP calling for a ceasefire. Now, it does feel as though Keir Starmer has gone from a period of almost letting his front bench say whatever they like on the issue to one where they're now being suggested they shouldn't sign EDMs, which is always technically normally the case. Um, but I think that has been relayed. So if there is this vote, I think there would be an expectation that Keir Starmer would be telling, you know, if you're on my front bench, you, you cannot vote against the, the party line. So I think that would be a test for it. And then I think more generally speaking, I mean, where does this leave Keir Starmer? You can obviously look at the fact that he is, you know, still very far ahead in the polls. Rishi Sunak, you know, is the one who's in the much more uncomfortable position. But I think this is still an uncomfortable crisis for the Labour leader because he has had so much authority on this party that you think about how he's taking control of it. And it just shows there are still some issues, issues that historically run deep in the Labour Party where he, you know, he is having to deal with the reality that lots of his party are very unhappy and that's going to sow him some problems later down the line. Finally, just on the King's speech more generally, Danny, it was obviously a real focus on law and order with five bills relating to that in yesterday's speech. Do they add up? There's obviously a lot of focus on tougher sentencing, for instance, but as you've covered in, in great detail, that there's not actually the prison spaces to, to put these criminals. Yeah, I mean, I was quite frustrated with some of the narrative 
that sadly I think the media uh, kind of lapped up that this was uh, a package that was really tough on crime and tough sentencing measures and all the rest of it. And whilst there were um, some, you know, some important sentencing changes, which will mean that the most serious sex offenders, for example, will spend longer in custody and people who murder uh, with a sexual motive will automatically spend the rest of their life in prison and so on, some other measures around that, that that I think command broad public support. There were two big, big changes in the King's speech that hardly got any coverage that will involve letting more prisoners out early and sending fewer offenders to prison in the first place, because there's this presumption against short prison terms of less than 12 months, which means that could be up to three and a half thousand offenders won't go to prison for short spells uh, who would otherwise do and secondly an extension of the early release on electronic tag scheme called home detention curfew to all prisoners who are serving sentences standard determinate sentences and that could mean many thousands are released up to six months before their release date barely any mention of those proposals and that's really principally because the prisons are full. No more room at the inn. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening.